Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Eves in Context. If you were to come to Middle Tennessee and wander into any number of Puckett's restaurants, you just might see a gentleman, very unassuming, walking around, talking to employees and customers, and probably a musician on a stool playing a guitar or two. The most laid-back, unassuming, humble, kind man you'll ever meet is Andy Marshall. Andy is the founder and CEO of A Marshall Hospitality. It's a restaurant management group here in Middle Tennessee and expanding beyond, as we'll learn. He oversees about 400 employees. When Cindy and I moved to Middle Tennessee 16-plus years ago, we visited a Puckett's restaurant, as someone recommended, and felt like we'd come home. It's a great southern home-cooked food, everything from pulled pork to turnip greens to uh, evil cobblers and pies and all the kinds of things that your southern grandma might have made. Andy has restaurants in Franklin, Nashville, Columbia, Chattanooga, Murfreesboro, Pigeon Ford, Tennessee, if you know a little bit about our history. He also owns a group that is Americana Tap House in downtown Franklin, Burger Daddy in Franklin as well. Puckett's Trolley, which you can envision what that's like. They also have a catering and event division. He has Scouts Pub in Franklin, Tennessee, as well as my favorite, Deacon's New South, which is a fabulous steakhouse in downtown Nashville. I'm not going to read his CV and Vita because if I do, that's all I'll do is read all the accomplishments and achievements that Andy has uh, received over the years. He is a treasure in Tennessee. I will tell you, he's been recognized by every restaurant association, the governors of Tennessee, and so forth. But I first met you, I think, at the Franklin restaurant. It's when I think you took over the boathouses. Right. Our friend Jay Seculo and I were having lunch, and you walked over, and it was Joe Davis and Jay and I, and we first time we had met, and we've had the fortune to uh, be together a number of times over a meal. But I wanted folks to hear a little bit about your story. I was blown away. One night we were at a friend's house and I just asked about how you came to Christ and got in the restaurant business. And I was just sat there shocked. And I thought, we got to have Andy on the podcast. So first of all, thanks for coming on the, on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah. Talk about the young Andy that people don't know walking around middle Tennessee, probably barefoot with a fishing pole and a bicycle. <laughs> well, more like uh, asphalt with worn out tennis shoes, but <laughs> okay. yeah, I, I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. I lived there until I was 12 years old and then softly landed in middle Tennessee and been here in Franklin ever since. But yeah, so the young Andy Marshall was, for the most part, a good kid uh, with very little guidance in life, which led to making some big mistakes um, at a very early age. And so, you know, God had to deal with me and dealt with me kindly. <laughs> well, now you say softly landed. Tell people about your story, because when you told me, I, that's what my mouth dropped up. You were basically on your own. Yeah, so uh, raised by a single mom for most of that time, she remarried, and during that period of her remarrying, our family kind of fell apart. She was a heavy drinker, to say the least, and then became an alcoholic uh, under the tutelage of her new husband, and unfortunately, it kind of broke up our family. My brother, who was you know seven and a half years older than I am, 
he left the house at age 15. Actually, one summer we were spending with my dad, which we, one week a year, and he just refused to go home. It was, and I didn't understand at the time. I was seven years old and just, you know, just didn't quite understand what was going on. Then my sister, who's four years older than me, she became a runaway at age 13. And it uh, ended up being uh, really the, you know, tragic because she later died of hepatitis from the, mm. the hippie days of the 70s. And, you know, here's a 13-year-old girl living on the streets and hitchhiking across America. And she later got her life together, thank thank God, but it paid a toll on her, mm. on her life. But And I didn't quite understand that either, you know, until they were both gone. And then it became my turn to, to be picked on and abused. And unfortunately got to the point where I was trying to connect with my dad. I had not quite made that connection and he kept encouraging me to stick it out and I could make it work. And I knew I was just kind of at my wits end, but so I was searching, searching for a savior. I was looking for it in all different places and trying to find that comfort. And so over the years, I was just kind of trickled on about God. I'd never went to church, didn't know much about it. I knew my grandmother was a Christian. She'd given me a Bible when I was 12 and wrote in there, you know, some words to live by in Micah. And so I kind of held on to that Bible, trying to figure it out. And little by little, you know, strangely enough, my stepfather was, uh, (laughs) he was a con artist and uh, he was conning churches into building projects. And I didn't know it at the time, you know, kind of figured it out later, but I went to those work sites with him, and uh, it was mostly black heritage-type churches that he would con. But those ladies would take me in when I was on those work sites, and they would drip and love on me and and share the gospel. And some of that really stuck in with me at at my most, uh, I guess, troubling time. But what kind of led me to the Lord is I was picked up by a police officer on the streets of Memphis, and he said... uh, Hey, where do you live? I'll take you home. And he took me to my house and nobody was there. And, you know, it was, I don't know, five, six o'clock in the, in the afternoon. And he said, well, I want to take you to a place where you could better spend your time. And he introduced me to the Boys and Girls Club. And he said, this, you know, this is a better option for you. And then later picked me up from Boys and Girls Club and took me to my house. Wow. Had a conversation with my mother and said, the streets of Memphis are no place for him and needs to be somewhere safe. And wow. and so he kind of gave her the ultimatum that I was going to end up in jail at a very young age or I could be spending time at Boys and Girls Club. And, and so that kind of started my relationship there. And, and again, you know, some biblical uh, basis to what Boys and Girls Club uh, was doing, although it's not a necessarily a Christian organization, but but they were certainly pouring into me and kind of started my foundation. But unfortunately, you know, when I was 12 years old and, and my stepfather gave my mother an ultimatum, said either he was leaving or I had to go. And so my mother looked at me across the table and said, do you have anywhere to go? Wow. Yeah, I called my dad and had a conversation with him. And unfortunately, on the other end of the line, he was saying, son, I just I can't take you in. You know, I just can't do it right now. Just figure it out, work it out. And so I hung up the phone and I told my mother that he was coming to pick me up, but he didn't want to come to the house. He didn't want a confrontation that he would pick me up at my friend's house. And she said, okay. And she helped me pack my bag and I left. 
Some four days later, my dad called to check on me, and my mother said, I thought he was with you. And he said, no, I had explained to him I couldn't take him at this time. And and she said, well, I know where he's at if you want to come talk to him. And so he came and picked me up at uh, at my friend's house, and uh, and he brought me back to Franklin. And so that kind of reset my life, and I decided at that point that I was just going to be a different kid. I was going to take this opportunity, and I was going to make good of it. And I was in the midst about 30 days before all this happened, I had uh, had turned my life over to the Lord at uh, Southland Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Love it. Love <laughs> it. Walked into those doors and just trying to figure out what this all was about, Jesus. And um, and you were 13. I was 13. I just turned 13. So so you were, especially knowing you, you're, you're a very humble individual, and I could talk about it, but you had to be a pretty bright individual to put together the home situation, what you needed to do, and then even to be interested in spiritual things at age 13. I've always been a pretty introspective type person. And so I, I knew there was something better. I just knew it. And, you know, I was trying, you know, I put a lot of trust in my brother as a very young boy and and then my sister and my sister bless her heart, she looked after me and took care of me and mm. did all she could uh, for me. Even later, when I got in business, she helped me with my accounting and, you know, just stood by my side and everything. But wow, I looked forward to my dad, but I was only seeing my dad two weeks a year. And that, you know, I had built up this image of a father that mm-hmm. was hard for him to live up to. And so, you know, little by little did I find out there was only one true person that I could trust. And when I gave my life to Christ, it all changed, changed everything, changed my perspective, my outlook, my attitude. I know it's supposed to, they tell you it changes slowly over time. But for me, I just took it and ran with it. And I just buried myself into the Bible and tried to figure it out. I love it. You and I are old enough to look at these. I like to look at decades and how people respond to things. And your and my generation, I think the work ethic we came from, even some of the hardships that you experienced, certainly. What's your diagnostic? Because it seems like those of us, we kind of, you went and did the next thing. You went to work. You found a job. I swept the floor of a barbershop. I shined shoes and boots for 35 and 50 cents. You know, that was what we did. Today, throwing those same experiences, kids are very different the way they respond. They're victims. They're certainly hurt. But if you had any diagnostic on that, and you employ a lot of people, which means you've had to fire a lot of people over the years, yeah. have you made any observations from a high level of why it's so different, Andy? Well, I don't know that I'm smart enough to give the intelligent answer on that. But from my perspective, we were raised in a different generation. For you know, you, our parents, you know, my parents worked. My mother and stepfather both were were workers and. I saw that, but I was left on my own. So I learned how to cook. I learned how to do the laundry. I learned how to go out and collect bottles to get cash to buy yep. food for the house. I, I just, you know, you just did what you had to do. And even when I started my my business, you know, a lot of people won't want me to mentor them, and they'll they want to start where I'm at. You know, they want to, <laughs> they want to know how do I do what you do, and and what they don't want to hear is that. You know, for the first eight years in Leaper's Fork, I got up at three o'clock every morning. And I was making biscuits at three thirty. You know, and I did that every single day with nonstop. You know, 
And it wasn't until somebody said, you're always here. Do you ever take a vacation? Did I ever even think about it? You know, because I had to build a business. I had to provide for my family. And today's, you know, youth, you know, even my own children, you know, sometimes I, I tell Jan that, uh, my wife, that, you know, did we do wrong? Did we make it too easy for our own children, you know? But every generation wants to do that. Every generation wants to make it better for the next generation. And, you know, we tried to instill work ethic into them, and we sometimes felt like we didn't do enough or failed. And then my daughter in college writes me a letter and telling me, thanking me, you know, mm-hmm. for the work ethic we instilled into them and how she sees it around other people in college, how they won't even go to class or do their work and how they're ever going to accomplish anything. And she wrote us a beautiful letter thanking us for making our work in our business and, you know, picking up rocks in the yard because that's what you do when you're in the country. And, you know, you just, everybody had jobs to do. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah. We thought we didn't do enough, but apparently it's some of it stuck. Well, and none of us are, you know, I think we all have buyer's remorse when it comes to parenting, wish we'd have done it differently. But the work ethic I've maintained, that's, to me, that was the seminal fault line was that there wasn't a, we had kids when we moved here to Middle Tennessee and Brentwood school systems, and I made them have part. I said, well, we'll help you with the car, but you will have a part-time job for gas because I'm paying for most of the car and the insurance. And uh, if you want to go to youth group and church and school, great. Beyond that, you got to put gas in that car. Oh boy, the rebellion of, you know, no one else in Brentwood had to work and they weren't far from wrong. You know I mean? Most kids didn't work, but I would say all of them came back at one point and said, thanks for making us work and learning the value. But it's interesting. And it's, again, you don't want to be an ogre and you do want to bless your kids, but it's that pain versus gain and what anyway, I I digress. So, so I promise that my kids never were as hungry as I was at one time. (laughs) (laughs) That's I'll have to remember that one. (laughs) You were never as hungry as I was. Well, talk about uh, Leaper's Fork. For those that don't know Middle Tennessee, in those days, Leaper's Fork was probably a pretty remote farm area. I had owned and operated grocery stores, and I had built it up to four grocery stores. And a lot of that was uh, following my dad and trying to be the proverbial, you know, good son and, and so he was it. a grocer your dad was a grocer he okay. was yeah he worked from Lone and Hyde which back in the old days was a premier grocery wholesaler that also owned some grocery stores and he was moved from Memphis to Franklin to open up the giant food stores if you it's even before your time but it was the first giant uh, grocery stores and people would you know, line up on the street to get yeah. in it because it was so new and unique. But anyway, he was a fine grocerman and great reputation. And I wanted to mimic that and worked, started working in the grocery business when I was 14 and worked my way all through it. But at age 26, I bought my first grocery store. And along the path of growing that business, I got to the point and pinnacle of my career and, and just looked up and said, what? where is this going? You know, I was about 35. My dad had passed from a tragic accident. And so I didn't have that driving to, you know, please him like I once had. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to get rid of these and do something different. Found this little country grocery store in Leapers Fork that uh, two people called me about within a week. And I'd never really heard of Leapers Fork. I grew up in Franklin, but I knew it as Hillsborough. And I was like, where is this Leapers Fork? I was like, (laughs) 
uh, it had a name change and it was in the midst of under uh, Aubrey Preston's tutelage of kind of rebranding itself as a community. And Aubrey had heard that I'd heard about it and I knew the grocery business and would I come and look at this little country grocery store and I did, and I just fell in love with the community first. I thought, you know what? Nothing else. This will be a great little hobby project for me. I'll make it a cool little country grocery <laughs> store. You know, I'll hang a gone fishing sign up when I want to go fishing. <laughs> and none of that happened. So I, I ended up buying it, and then I had to figure out how to make a living out of it to provide for my family. And, uh, and as entrepreneurs do, you know, good is never good enough. You have to keep pushing and try to find ways to do it better. And so Leaper's Fork was kind of all consuming, but man, what a great time in our life, that community and raising our kids out there. And, you know, what a great safe place for my kids to come work and, you know, and enjoy being part of the family business, but at the same time living in a really cool community where everybody just loved on them and treated them so well. You didn't lock your doors and left your keys in the car in those days, didn't you? That's right. Now, yeah. now talk about that because that uh, grocery, it was called Puckett's, correct? Yeah, it was. It was a little country grocery store. I actually knew Leon Puckett from the grocery business. He and I were on grocer's uh, board together. And I knew his family had all these little country grocery stores kind of dotted out around uh, Middle Tennessee and they were all designed as little country grocery stores. So Leaper's Fork was just, you know, 2,200 square feet, which is nothing in today's standards of, you know, 60 to 80,000 square foot grocery yeah. stores. But it served a community. It had two gas pumps. It had a little, you know, six-foot meat counter and eight-foot produce and dairy counter and the groceries that would keep you from having to go to town if you didn't want to. And of course, you know, those little country grocery stores started dying when the convenience of driving and other grocery stores, you know, bigger Kroger's and all this other stuff started coming into their markets. Those started struggling. And I saw it as, um, I don't know, kind of a heritage restoration. This community needs it and mm -hmm. I needed it. And so it was just kind of a perfect pairing for me to just to get some energy out after selling my grocery stores and kind of resetting. And Did it feel like a risk at the time or was it like, you said kind of a hobby, but did it feel like, okay, this is a big risk? It became a risk. Yeah. Once I, at the time, you know, I had a little money uh, sell, selling the grocery stores and I sold three and closed one. So I had a little money. And so we ended up buying the business and then, um, poured our money into it, trying to make it work. And it took a, took a good uh, about six years for us to really get it to where it got traction. And so uh, it, it went from being a hobby to, I need to figure this out, or, or I'm going to use all our savings, and my wife's going to look at me one morning and say, what the heck have you gotten us into? So uh, when we were just about that. Was Jan working with you as well? Well, Jan and I can't work together. We found that oh. out. <laughs> yeah, we love each other dearly, but uh, I love it. In the when we were in the grocery business, I say she was fired twice and quit once. She <laughs> says she quit twice and was fired once. <laughs> I think that's a book title right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Again, you've told me the story before, but folks that don't know, you had kind of a 
if I remember correctly, a pretty precious exchange with the family that was named Puckett's when you bought it from them. Yeah, so because I knew Leon, I, I contacted Leon and I said, listen, you know, the, the business was starting to click and I started to feel like maybe this is going to be something that could be, you know, worth something at some point in time. And so I had called Leon and said, I'd love for you to bring the family out, enjoy a meal, see what we've done. And then I'd like to ask his it was his aunt at the time that asked, you know, the matriarch of the of the family. I'd like to ask her if if I could continue the Puckett's name, you know, and and so that's uh, they came out had a meal, and when I asked that question, uh, she just cried. It meant so much to her that despite all that they had been through as uh, as a family trying to run these community grocery stores that somebody wanted to keep it up and keep it alive as puckets and from my standpoint i thought people would give directions by the location you oh know, yeah you know where puckets yep. at where you go to yep. puckets and a mile past it to take a ride you know and, and i just could not imagine changing the name i felt like it was too much about me if i changed the name and i wanted it to be about location and not about me so yeah well for folks that haven't been into a puck it's it's a very warm experience and the way cracker barrel is has a consistent look and feel puckets has a very consistent look and feel but you walk in there's that combination of there's a bank of drinks and a refrigerator there and there's a countertop there and there's wood floors and kind of mismatched furniture and it just feels like this is a comfortable place to sit down and have a breakfast or a cup of coffee or a meet and three. Or, I mean, it, it, yeah. was that part of the original store or was that your handprint later on? Yeah. So that was the idea was to make it feel like a mom and pop grocery store that you had to push everything to the four walls in order to make it work. And the only way you can make it work was by serving good home-cooked meals. And and that's what we started in Leapers Fork. And we were trying to figure out, you know, Leapers Fork was still serving a community with some groceries and things, but could we translate that into another location and have that same feel? And Franklin was our first shot at it. And so we took an old bicycle shop. I mean, it was probably even before your time, but yes. you know, this was a bicycle shop. And then it became City Grocery, which was supposed to be you know, kind of probably before it's time for Franklin, but a cool concept of gourmet foods. And we took that and said, can we give that same feel of Leapers Fork here in Franklin? Here we are some 20 years later, and it has done that. And it did in Nashville, and it did in Columbia. And and so it's, you know, it's just been a a great model for us. But uh, it's intentional, made to feel unintentional, if that makes sense. Well, I think the first time I went to the one in Franklin, I was overwhelmed how busy it was. It was like, you can't get in this place if you don't get there early. And every time I go in that area, I'm always amazed. And you got a little small area outside, but that's always the coveted spots when the weather's nice. And it's always got a line and Sunday lunch. Good luck getting into a puckets. (laughs) Yeah, well, I often tell people I'll never apologize for being too busy. There you go. There you go. Talk, talk a little bit about how you keep your faith in a business world like this. Now, the middle of Tennessee is a little more, let's say, friendly than yeah. some places in the country. But even that, being a believer in Christ, 
the way you hire people, the way you have to manage and let people go. Talk a little bit about that. You know, it's important to be true to yourself. And I don't know any other way to run my business, you know, and people will challenge you on that. You know, people that will look at you and and tell you one way or another, they try to skew you one way or another. They either think you need to be overly Christian with everything and make in your business should be, you know, you should have Bible verses on your walls or whatever, or they will be, you're a fraud. You can't, you, you're not mm-hmm. truly a Christian because you're, you know, you're open on Sunday. And I've always let the business have its own identity from the standpoint it's apolitical. It doesn't have a conscious, so it doesn't have politics. It, it's a business serving a community. I, as the owner or ahead of it, I have to be true to myself. And so in that, I've got to insert myself into that business and I've got to insert my own values. And sometimes there's conflicts there, but I'll always err on the side of what feels right and doing the right thing. And, you know, sometimes that ruffles other people's feathers, but, you know, being a Christian is, you know, is, is who I am and, and serving a community, I think is part of that, uh, part of my of who I am and what our mission is. And and I tell you, you know, when you, we got now close to 500 employees and our business is a mission field. I work with all walks of life. I work with people that need a fresh start. I work with people that are transitioning into other jobs. In the meantime, they just need to make money. And I work with people, this is their career and they got to feed their family on what they make. And Knowing that and knowing that I can have some influence on their lives by praying for them, by being consistent in my faith with them, that they don't see a different person away from work than they see at work, that the same person is going to be there consistently there. You know, and most challenges that I get are usually from non-Christians, you know, it's it's Mm -hmm. from, from people that have drawn a hard line for whatever reason in their life. But I find if I just consistently love them, and consistently have the same message to them that eventually they uh, uh, find their way to soften their hearts a little. And if we can just crack the door a little bit, you know, give God a way in, just like he did in my life. I know it's, you know, if you can just give him just a, a little space in your in your heart, he'll do the rest. So um, I just feel like that's, that's who we are and that's what we're about. Now, I try to surround myself with like thinking minds, but not every hire, particularly, you know, even in our open management, not everybody thinks and acts as I do. Sometimes that's revealed over time, and sometimes it's hidden from me. Truly, you know, some of the hardest departures have been because we just don't see eye to eye, and I'm not running my business that way, and, and I'm not going to compromise on my values to make a dollar or push people to their limits when I know that it's the backbone of our people that I'm successful. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, not my efforts that have made me successful. It's I've, I've hired good people, and over time, you know, they've helped me be successful. So uh, culture uh, in our business is really about, not about brick and mortar. It's, it's all about people. So, When, again, for folks that haven't visited a Puckett's or the New Deacon South, when you walk in, it's very common to see someone or maybe more than one person on a stool with a guitar and maybe you have a little merch there. Uh, my good friend Rob Harris loves, loves, loves yes. playing at Puckets whenever he gets an opportunity and many others. And these guys don't have to do it. 
But it's like, you know, I get to play music and that I love, and sometimes it's background noise, but it's an interesting, it is Music City, but it's an interesting, it's kind of like Bucky's, however they figured out what they did. Andy Marshall figured out, I need somebody playing live music in my restaurants. Yeah, so that really started back in the Leapish Fork in the community. We were surrounded around talented songwriters and artists and we had to figure out some way to make Leapers Fork a destination. You know, it was, the food was good. The service was good. It's a cool community, but how do we get people to drive in from Bellmead or Brentwood or to Leapers Fork? And so music was kind of the catalyst of that. And then it got so entrenched into who we were everywhere we go. We just announced Hendersonville and somebody was asking me what, what made you choose Hendersonville? I said, it's got a rich music history, and I just think it's a great fit for us. But, you know, we, then we go to Coleman, Alabama, and, you know, we think music's not that, you know, enriched in history there, but we get there and find out, gosh, there's all kinds of songwriters and musicians that live in Huntsville and Coleman and Birmingham and, you know, just looking for a place to play. So, I don't know. Music is, uh, it's not the smartest business model (laughs) because your tables don't turn when you're, when people are sitting and listening to music. Um, but it has somehow God has blessed us through it all. And it has become who we are, what we do. And it's, I don't know, I've, I've built some great relationships with the music community and people I would have never met had we not chosen this path. So I love it. I enjoy it. And I love what it brings to our communities that we serve. It is kind of an interesting concept because unless you're like a big name artist, those guys can barely make a living anymore. For them, they really love to play. They love to use that gift and skill more than they want to be rich or whatever. And, you know, I'm thinking through a whole roster of my friends that would play and they go, you know, we just love to play. Yeah. And again, if you got some young kid that comes up and watching someone playing a violin or a guitar, or in some cases you have a family, you have like a trio, and it's like they're enamored by that. And who knows, that person might say, hey, I want to learn how to play the guitar or play the fiddle or whatever. So uh, that's you can't, you can't put a dollar on that, can you? No. I'll tell you one of my favorite stories was, you know, I had this songwriter that had been begging and asking, you know, can I play? And it wasn't that we didn't want him on stage. It's just that we were booked out so far. And I kept saying, he was new to the community. I kept saying, yeah, if you, you know, we do it in the round. So if you can get two or three other musicians, or artists, songwriters to play with you, you know, we'll put something together. And so I put it together and he calls me and he says, hey, I think I got Vince Gill coming too. And I said, that's good. That's a good a good person to bring. He said, but we can't put it on the playbill because, you know, he may may not be able to show up. And he said, just don't promote it. But if I can make it, I'll make it. And I said, okay. Well, lo and behold, Vince Gill does come and he plays. And at the end of the night, this is back when we were paying them about $100 an artist to play on the stage. And I'm looking at this $100 in my hand and I'm looking at Vince Gill. <laughs> and I'm thinking... This is kind of embarrassing to have to walk up and offer Vince Gill $100 for just playing music. And he is so sensitive, right? So I'm, as I'm walking up to him, he's, he's, he's doing his head like, no, no, give him the money. <laughs> and I thought, man, how, how intuitive he was knowing that I was a 
I was a nervous wreck having to go up and give Vince Gill a hundred dollars <laughs> for playing at buckets. There you go. <laughs> but what was beautiful about the night is he stayed because people, you know, wanted yeah. to, his autograph and everything. And he was so patient and loving to everybody. But then after everybody left, he sat down with our servers and he rolled silverware with them and told stories. And I thought that night would have never ended because everybody didn't want it to end. But he was just—he sat there and, and for an hour and a half, just told stories and 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 said, "Oh, you know, he's rolling silver, four knives, spoon. You know, he's going through it and repeating it. And, uh, it was just a beautiful night. But that's the kind of community we live in. You know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The third and Lindsley downtown. Uh, Cindy and I used to frequent there, and he he was a regular. I think every Monday night for a long time. And and again, he wasn't always there, but he's just a normal guy. You know, yeah. uh, Middle Tennessee has been pretty kind to the famous people and left them alone. But but also, hey, I like your stuff, you know. Now, you mentioned Boys and Girls Clubs, and that's all over your kind of resume, CV, Vita story, your involvement with that. And obviously, it helped you as a boy. Tell me about that going forward, because you've been very involved with them. Well, it was kind of reintroduced to me. You know, I, I got busy marrying, raising kids, and, and doing life. And quite frankly, I had not dealt with my past for a long time. Um, and uh, it was Jan that kind of helped me deal with some of that, building a relationship back with my mother and some things that had to happen. But I didn't tell my story for a long time because I didn't want to hurt my mother's feelings. I didn't want to, you know, somebody said, you need to write a book. And I was like, gosh, if I write this book and, you know, it's just going to tear my mother apart. And, you know, nah, I don't want to do that. Well, she's, she passed. And, and when she passed, you know, we, of course, made a lot of amends before she passed, but we had some really good conversations towards the end of her life. And it was freeing, you know, it's just like the Bible tells us, you know, just even if she can't say the words, you say the words, you know, just say, I forgive you. And, and I hope you forgive me for whatever part I had in it. And so we had some freedom in that. And, uh, and so then the boys and girls club kind of got reintroduced out of that freedom of, you know, starting to talk about it or starting to share my story. And I, I realized, gosh, the boys and girls club had a bigger part in my story than, than I've given them credit for. And so we bought the Columbia location and started a business there. The director there in the Boys and Girls Club came in and spoke to me, and I thought, this is it. This, this is the time for me to give back to an organization mm -hmm. that uh, did so much for me. Even though it was you know, on the peripheral, they did do a lot for me, you know, grounding me and, and giving me some foundation. So. I started working with uh, what was then the Murray County Boys and Girls Club. Now it's the South Central Boys and Girls Club as they've grown and, and have taken on more communities. And then Middle Tennessee calls me and asks me if I could be a part of their story and uh, do a video for them on their 150 years, uh, the oldest Boys and Girls Club in America. Wow. And so I, I got to share my story with them and how big of a part Boys and Girls Club was with me. So it's just kind of grown, but it really kind of grew out of me being able to find freedom and forgiveness and deal with the things that I had not dealt with. I just had kind of 
put it all in a box and put it behind me and was just going to be a different person. But I never really dealt with it until close to my mother's death. And I started telling the story. And so anyway, that's how it came about. I wish I had realized that a long time ago because I've certainly enjoyed uh, being around the Boys and Girls Club and the kids and the difference they're making in these young people's lives. It's just amazing. Did you ever have any further contact with that police officer? No. And that's been asked of me several times. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, told the story at a Boys and Girls Club event in Nashville. And uh, somebody from Memphis uh, contacted me and said, boy, we'd love to help you find. And I said, I got no contacts at whatsoever. I mean, I was... You know, I was probably 11 at that time, 10 and a half maybe, and I, I just got no, so much of that. How would you even start? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I would have, it'd been a great story if I if, if I could have ever remembered, but no. Well, that's, you know, the Lord knows who he is, right? I think these are all part of the, the eternality of heaven. When we get there, we're going to find out all kinds of backstories of things we yeah. never understood yeah. while we were, you know, doing well, X and Y. We didn't realize that touched us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's also interesting to hear because, again, men can compartmentalize and work ethic and carry us. But, yeah. but there was a time you said at Jan's provocation, it sounded like I need to kind of think through some of this. Yeah, you know, not dealing with it probably. Um, kept me from being a better husband at one point in our life, you know, not, you know, because I, I may have been short or snapped on things that I didn't really know, or she didn't understand why I was short or snapping at about. And I probably didn't realize it until I thought, oh gosh, you know, it's, she's touching something there that I haven't dealt with. And, and so dealing with it, you know, you get it out in the open and you start dealing with it. Then all of a sudden, it, it doesn't bother you anymore. If somebody touches that nerve, you know, it's like, yeah, no big deal. So, you know, Jan was a big part in, in helping me with deal with a lot of that stuff. And, and, you know, for a long time, I didn't tell her my story, you know? Mm-hmm. So she was probably the first person I shared it with. Um, and then, um, later on, it just, it's become easier and easier to share, share that story. Wow. Wow. Well, we appreciate you talking about it a little bit. Give me any Marshall's two or three business lessons, because there's probably some, you know, we hear the word entrepreneurial a lot in right. this community. And whenever I hear it, I go, everybody has a different definition. And we can talk about tenacity and hard work and risk and vision, but you've undoubtedly got two or three isms that you follow and live by. The motto that I often will end with on a salutation to my employees and things is never let good get in the way of great. And I've always kind of been driven that way. You know, I was uh, undersized, uh, too slow athlete in in high school, but uh, they couldn't keep me out of the lineup because I just had such grit and determination and leadership and all these things that, you know, sometimes sort of the untangibles people talk about with, with people, a lot of that came from my past and, and just, you know, refusing to give into the environment around me and try to overcome the environment. But I've always loved that saying, never let good get in the way of, of great. And, you know, good's never been good enough for me. I always thought of, if I could do this, then, then I can do, better and so you know the other 
thing is, is, I always tell people it's a process. You don't wake up one morning great at something. It's a process, and, and you got to be patient with the process, which is a great thing to remind myself when I'm trying to bring along other people in our business or, or mentoring people is that, you know, I can't expect you to think like I do and, and, and make the decisions that I make without you making a few mistakes along the way. And so, you know, I always tell people it's, it's a process and be patient with the process. I'll be patient if you are, but we got to learn from our mistakes and we got to, got to do better. As you look back over your life and God's blessing and what would you say was like the defining moment for Andy Marshall? If you had to write down some defining moments, for me, it was walking in the doors of Southland Baptist Church in my elephant ear, bell bottoms, and my best t-shirt, and and just trying, just seeking, uh, just saying I, I've got to, I've got to take a step to figure something better out for my life. And that pastor seeing a young boy waiting out a rainstorm and coming up to me and saying, "Hey, do you need a ride?" and I said. No, my, my parents are going to come pick me up, no, knowing that I had about about 14 blocks to walk, and it was a driving Memphis storm. And he sensed it, and he said, well, I'll just take you home. And he did. And then they said, why don't I pick you up tonight for Sunday night service? And he did. And then the next week he said, well, I'm going to do a baptism next week. Would you like to be baptized? So, wow. Yeah, so that walking in Southland Baptist Church and it's truly the defining moment of my life. It's when I gave my life to Christ and I, I just said, no no longer am I going to look for things in all the wrong places. I'm just going to trust in one. Andy Marshall, Andy Marshall Hospitality, almost 500 employees. How many restaurants total now, Andy? <laughs> We've got 12 with 13 coming. 13 on the way and your daughter's making ice cream? Yeah, Hattie Jane's Creamery. Hey, Dan Creamery, and when you come to Middle Tennessee, you must need to check out Puckets for breakfast and make a reservation for Deacon's New South because you'll need it to get in, and it'll be <laughs> one of the finest steaks you've ever had. So, Andy, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for coming on the podcast, and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Dr. E. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.